This is Tax Chats. Hello, I'm Scott Dyring. And I am Jeff Hoops. And we're here to chat about taxes. Hello again, and welcome to another edition of Tax Chats. I'm Scott Dyring, professor of accounting at Duke University, and I am joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, professor of accounting at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and curator of the Tax Museum, Jeff Hoops. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Scott. What's going on today? Not a whole lot. What's happening in, in the world of tax chats today? So today we have on Tax Chats, Eric Telecamp. Eric, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, good morning. Uh, my name is Eric Telecamp. Uh, I'm really excited to be here. I appreciate you having me. I never thought I'd have the opportunity to do a, a podcast. So I guess the tax world has, has brought me to this place and I'm, I'm thankful for that. Uh, I have been practicing tax for, it'll be 12 years on June 1st. So I've uh, been in the industry for a while. Um, I've worked for a couple of big four firms, and I also worked internally for a real estate developer up in New York City. Uh, and currently, I'm a managing director with BDO's core tax services practice. So I focus mainly on real estate, um, but more generally just in our, our flow through entities and partnership tax groups. So i um, been here about a year and, uh, and really enjoying it. So again, thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, this is most people's like climax of their, their uh, professional life being on tax. Chat. So yeah. it's a little bit, it's, it's, you should be happy to be here, but no, it's all downhill from here. <laughs> well, it says something about the excitement of a tax, uh, of, of a life involved in taxes. Oh, that's definitely false. Okay. So um, you mentioned you did a lot with real estate. So that's kind of what we want to talk about. So when I think of real estate, like the first thing that comes to mind in the tax world is like kind exchanges. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what those are? And, ten, and often people also call them 1031 exchanges. I don't know which one of those you're going to use, but for those people who aren't like big into the internal revenue code, 1031 like kind exchange would mean the same thing. So tell us what a like kind exchange is. Yeah, sure. And, the, and they're used interchangeably, like you said. Um, so 1031 is the internal revenue code section that governs like kind exchanges. And the point of 1031, it, it's a tax deferral strategy for when you're selling real estate. So you can sell a building that you own that has, let's call it a million dollars of gain, and you don't want to pay tax on that right away. You can sell your building. You can buy another building or another piece of real property. We can kind of get into to how it works. And as long as you're utilizing all the funds that you received from your sale, you'll be able to defer your taxes until a later date when you eventually sell a property without a 1031 exchange. Um, so it's really beneficial as you um, aim to maybe get into new asset classes or if you want to just, you know, if you have a big gain for a property you've held for a long time and you want to turn that into a brand new property that might be bigger and shinier, whatever it might be, um, it's a great opportunity to not pay those cash taxes at the time. With your, with your clients that you see doing this, do they, when you do a 1031 exchange, you defer the taxes, do they just keep on doing that and just keep on deferring and deferring and deferring? Or at some point do they say, well, we'll, we'll pay taxes this time? Well, sometimes I've seen them do it for years and years and years. Um, and it kind of depends on, are you hitting a point where you want the cash? You know, sometimes it's, we're a family owned business. We're kind of ready to wind this up. Let's go ahead and, and take our cash and pay our tax hit and call it a day. 
Um, and other times it's, you know, we want to plan for our family for the future. We want to hold these assets forever. So let's exchange for as long as we can and, and not pay these taxes and keep getting these, you know, bigger and bigger buildings. And, and if you can do that until somebody die, the holder dies, then you kind of, the ultimate deferral strategy, get that step up in basis at death and like the taxes just all kind of vanish. Is that something you frequently see? Uh, personally, no. Um, we are very, uh, we like to separate our expertise. So I guess, you know, I really focus on the real estate. We have people that handle those type of estate things. So yes, I've seen it pass over from, you know, family member to family member upon death. Um, but that portion of it, at least, you know, that whole estate planning, uh, we let someone else who's an expert there do that. So I guess my question isn't, isn't that like, if you have prepared that or helped in that process, but that is, that is something that you would see that you do like you defer your whole life and then just not pay at the end. Cause you had the foresight to die with those uh, unrealized gains. An interesting way to put it, but I suppose so. So, um, this is kind of an amazing strategy because, uh, it's, it sort of reminds me of, we always tell everybody like invest in a Roth or invest in an IRA because you can defer your taxes, defer your taxes, you get tax deferred growth. And this is kind of like the same thing, only you don't have to have it inside of a Roth or an IRA where you have like investment limitations and so forth. So why, why does the government like let people do this? Do you have any idea? It's a good question. I mean, I've talked with people about this before. I, I think what it comes down to is I think there's some economic stimulation, right? Tied to real estate. You have a, let's say I bought a building for a million bucks back in the nineties or the early two thousands and it's appreciated. And now it's worth five to $10 million and I can buy a retail strip center or something along those lines, right? Like you can sink it into a new property that is, of use to other people, right? So you have people who are benefiting off of it as opposed to a Roth where, you know, I put in these assets and all of a sudden 40 years later, I'm getting the benefit from my personal wealth. The whole idea with 1031 is they're investment properties, right? None of it is personal use. That is one of the keys to separate, you know, your, your own residence versus an investment property. So it needs to either be used in a trade or business or held for investment in order to qualify for 1031 um, treatment. And so I think that's one of the big things is just, you know, there, there's some sort of economic benefit to you continuing to get bigger and bigger with your real estate and, and other people might come into the real estate that you previously owned, right? And they're going to do whatever they may please with that. And I think that there's opportunities there for, for you know, varying degrees of impact on the economy. That gets me thinking about... Um... The, the name of these are like kind exchanges. And you just sort of gave some criteria that must be met in order for something to qualify. But so what types of things that are alike can be exchanged? So like, let's just suppose I buy, I don't know, um, a painting, a Van Gogh painting. And I decide I want to get rid of my Van Gogh painting and sell it and get another painting by Picasso or something. I wish I had enough money to buy a Van Gogh and a Picasso, which I do not, but um, suppose I did. Can I like kind exchange my paintings? Can I like kind exchange my stocks that I buy? Like, can I like, what What can I and can I not like kind exchange? This would be a more interesting conversation uh, about six or seven years ago. So under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, this was really refined to only impact real property. So you got to go in and figure out what your real property is, but 
we usually see it with buildings, land, right? Like your typical things you'd see on the side of the road as you go. Um, before that, there was, you know, it was originally acted in 1921. So there's a long history, a lot of changes, but you could see a lot more interesting things. Um, someone that I work closely with, who's a very well-respected person in the industry, likes to always say, planes, trains, and automobiles, right? Like the 1980s movie with uh, Steve Martin and John Candy. Uh, you could really do any sort of property like that, that you're holding for investment purposes. Um, and to your point, uh, paintings is a good one. Artwork was eligible for like-kind exchange treatment six years ago, no longer. Um, the interesting part about that, or I find it interesting, is you could take a painting and exchange it for a painting. You could not take a painting and exchange it for a sculpture. Um, so that kind of gets to your like-kind versus non-like-kind definition. Um, now, you brought up an interesting point. I don't know what they would say about a Picasso for a Van Gogh or vice versa. That I don't know if the styles of painting come into play. It's perfectly possible they do. Um, but unfortunately, we're down to the point where it's only real estate and real property that are going to get this beneficial treatment. So they, they've made it easier for me and my practice to kind of focus on this one thing. But unfortunately, they've removed a lot of the benefit for other taxpayers. So maybe it's not surprising that uh, Donald Trump, the real estate mogul, was the president when things were restricted, but real estate was retained as a as a way to do this. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's, I think a big piece of it was that real estate was probably the most common or the most valuable of what you were seeing with these exchanges. Um, and so when it came to the point where they wanted to raise revenue, you could kind of cut those other things without having a whole industry come screaming at you, right? Um, the benefits there for, for the person in power also could have been a part of it, of course, but um, that is, you know, beyond my, my subject matter expertise. So no comment. So is, so within real estate, are there limitations on what you could exchange for one thing? Could I exchange like farmland for commercial property in the middle of a city or are there limitations there? Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's U.S. property for U.S. property. Um, you can't exchange for a building in London. You can't exchange for a building in Japan. But U.S. property for U.S. property should be fine. Um, there are varying rules there. And one of the keys is making sure that you actually have real property, um, which, you know, you see PLRs related to um, frequently because people want to make sure before they do it that, they have a good asset for 1031 purposes, but. Yeah, so tell us all about a, what, what is a PLR, private letter ruling? Tell us what that is. Yeah, so a private, uh, private letter ruling is an opportunity for a taxpayer to get in front of the IRS and ask for a ruling ahead of time on a transaction that they're intending to undertake or, or would like to undertake. And, you know, you pay a practitioner to get in front of the IRS and, you know, speak to what you want to do. The IRS thinks about it and writes you hey, this should be fine. Now, it does not necessarily then apply. It's not law. It doesn't apply to everything that ever comes after it. But there is some sort of comfort there for other taxpayers to then use those. Um, so there was actually a PLR within the last couple of months related to 1031s. You had a, um, there's a ranch owner or owners, whatever it may be. Who That's owned like Scott. Scott has a ranch. Yes, actually, we're, I want to ask you about that. So tell me your story and then I'm going to ask you some questions. 
So what they had was they had rights to divert water from the river onto their property, right? So they held these water rights um, and they wanted to make sure that those were 1031, you know, available. So they went, they got a private letter ruling and the IRS deemed these are going to be good for your purposes. You can sell these water rights, replace it with, you know, an office building, whatever it might be, and we're going to allow for, for the treatment. So that is, you know, that kind of goes to your point of what qualifies. Well, it should really be anything that they deem to be real property. But, the, yeah, but that's not a real property. That's like a, a right to, like, if you would have given you multiple choice to a true false test, there's no way I would have said, yeah, rights to, right to divert water. I said, no, you can't, you can't. Well, kind of you obviously that. didn't, you weren't the one giving the private letter ruling, Jeff. Yeah, Otherwise, it would have not been allowed. Or the fact that like seven years ago, you couldn't do a painting for a sculpture, but now you can do a right to divert water in Texas for a you know, office building in Maine. That's crazy. I have an unrelated question. So we've been calling these like kind exchanges, but when you introduced it, you say you sell for cash, use all that cash to buy something else. Did it start off with actual exchanges? Like you swapped somebody something for else, or why do we use the word exchange? Well, I mean, there needs to be a an exchange. That's part of the definition, right? So I think a lot of people look at it on its face as like kind, as a different word from exchange. Um, the key words that you hear often are relinquished property, and replacement property, right? So in a normal exchange, I sell my relinquished property. Um, I get cash. Now there's a whole different ball game here with what's called a qualified intermediary. You're supposed to hold on to the cash to make sure that you're uh, doing all the right things with it if you're trying to get 1031 treatment. Um, so that's kind of beyond the scope of what I think we want to talk about today. But when you get involved with 1031s, it becomes kind of commonplace. Um, that there's a lot of administrative procedures to fulfill in order to get treatment. But the relinquished property, um, and then you use the proceeds held by the qualified intermediary to buy the replacement property, which is your new property. Now, if I have a property and I sell it for a million dollars and I buy a new property worth $800,000, right? I can't find a million dollar property that makes sense. Well, then that extra $200,000 could be taxable as boot, which boot is anything that is not like kind property. So, um, well, you know, it's one of my are, favorite words in the tax world. It is. It's an interesting one. Yeah. So uh, that's where the 1031 exchanges can get really complicated is where you have properties with different values or you have um, relinquished and replacement properties with different levels of debt. Um, so you need to be careful with those types of things. Those are the really complicating technical matters. Uh, and then there's simply the administrative process that after you've done a few of them, they're kind of straightforward. But if you trip any of them, you might not get the treatment that you want. And so you need to be, you know, there's an identification period. So you sell a property, you have 45 days to identify the replacement property, and then you have 180 days in total, so 135 extra days to actually close on that replacement property. Um, all of these timelines, all of the forms that need to be filed, like if you miss any of them, there's danger of not receiving the appropriate treatment. So you just need to be careful that you know the rules, that you have someone smart who is kind of looking at this and making sure that they're they're doing everything appropriately um, in order to get this really beneficial tax treatment. How often do you see it not work out where somebody doesn't like find a replacement property, there's some problem in closing or they fill some, miss, misfill some form and they end up having to pay a whole bunch of taxes they weren't planning on paying. 
the the misfilling of form part I've only heard of one time. Um, I think that these have been commonplace for a while now. And so people know what they're doing, or at least they know who to get involved. Um, there are companies out there that really just focus, like they only do 1031 exchanges. They act as this intermediary or um, there's another thing called exchange accommodation title holder, kind of similar role, but um, there are whole companies based on just being the intermediary for 1031 exchanges. More frequently, it is not completely uncommon for you to sell a property and not identify a replacement property. Um, you know, you can want the 1031 treatment and do all you can, but, um, you know, it doesn't always work out. The part that, you know, they try to help you out with is, so within 45 days, you need to identify the property and it needs to be unambiguous. You can't just say, I'm going to buy some, you know, land somewhere else and we're going to call it a day. No, it has to be, I'm going to buy this property in this location and that will make it eligible. So they allow you to identify up to three properties or there are more, um, you know, certain rules around the value, right? So you could use two properties to replace your one. Um, so there are different options out there to kind of, to get to your point, but you need to be careful. Like, you know, like we talked about, there are little pitfalls here that, that you need to be really, really weary of um, and make sure or wary of and make sure that you're, uh, you're paying attention and you don't, you don't have any footfalls. So I, my guess is, I mean, you said you need to like hire some smart people to help you to do this. There's some cost to that, obviously, like this is how uh, some, some accountants and lawyers make a living at what size gain would it be worth it to get somebody involved? Let's say I do want to sell my property and buy another property. Is it like $50,000 or $500,000 or $5 million of gain that I would be needing to defer that would start making it worth my while to get somebody else involved? Um, you know, that that's going to be taxpayer specific with what they're looking for. Um, there's not a bright line test that tells you, you know, how much it's going to cost. Um, I'm sure there are vastly different ranges depending on who you hire to handle the accounting and the legal and even the intermediary. So I, I couldn't even put a number on it. You'd expect it. Those costs will add up relatively quickly. So yeah, if you have a $50,000 gain, I mean, unless you are going to roll the proceeds over into a new property anyway, and then it makes sense to just go ahead and do it. But, you know, for, for a small level of gain, it may, may not make the most sense for you. But like we said, there's no bright line test. Like with a $50,000 gain, let's say you have a marginal tax rate of 20%, it's just not that much money. You might end up paying more. In your fees. Yeah. Your no, fees. it's certainly possible. Yeah. But I don't think there's anybody who's going to tell you, hey, we won't do this for yeah, you. So that's exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Be, oh, no, actually, we'd rather not prepare that return. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you can you could probably just get on your present value calculator and say, if I could defer $100,000 in, you know, tax for 30 years and my tax rate is X and my interest rate is whatever, you could kind of figure out, right, what the savings so that, would be. That part is easy in my head. I just have no idea what this would actually cost to do. That was, that was a nice way of asking, how much do these cost to do? <laughs> it all depends. You know, I've, I've seen 1031s for properties valued at $750 million. Um, I've seen 1031s for properties valued at a million dollars. As you'd expect, they cost a little bit different. Um, so it really depends, like I said, on the taxpayer um, and how much work is going to go into it and making sure that everything goes smoothly. Obviously, for the intermediary, the more money they have to hold, the more risk there is and, and things like that. So, you know, you're going to, your fees are going to go up pretty quickly. Um, 
There are also, you know, certain taxpayers that 1031 just makes more sense for. There are other taxpayers, you know, big, big real estate funds might not really be interested in 1031, right? Like they want their cash. Um, They're going to be focused on returning money to investors. And so they're better off just go ahead, pay the taxes now, but return cash to your investors, make that IRR look really good for your next fund. So um, we see it a lot more often with, I don't want to say small companies because still very sophisticated and, and, you know, real dollars we're talking about. But a lot of times, like a family office is a great example, kind of what we talked about. Like, typically, you're not so worried about our our rate of return to our investors when you have a family office, right? Um, So they might want to defer this as long as possible and make sure that, you know, they're continuing to defer taxes. You never want that cash hit. So the type of taxpayer and their, their attributes makes a big difference. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, so it, would you say, it, uh, back to the pricing, is it kind of derived as a function of the value of the property, kind of like real estate fees, or does it just have nothing to do with that? I can't speak to the, the intermediaries and how they work. Um, but from our side, not necessarily. But the thing is, when you get into these larger properties, you're probably going to have more debt, maybe couple of tranches of debt, um, you know, just these various, I don't know, more complicating matters that we need to think about and make sure that we're looking into. And obviously the risk does play into it, right? Like if there's any sort of mistake and not that we would ever make one, but if there are any sort of error um, and taxes ended up being paid, you need to be pricing at least some of that risk in almost as like a little insurance policy, right? So um I think that's that, that's a big differentiator between the small property and the large property. It's not necessarily a percentage of the value, but more so the fact that a larger valued real estate property is going to have just just more matters that are complex. Yep. Um, okay. So, have you ever seen? I mean, you gave us the uh, water rights example. That was pretty pretty cool. And maybe maybe you have to go back to pre. Uh, pre-TCJA Trump tax cuts, but what's the craziest, craziest thing you've ever seen 1031? I wish I had a good story to tell here. Um, I would have had to go to somebody else and take their story if I wanted to be interesting. Um, You know, I've been, I started my career in 2011 in real estate, like a real estate tax group, right? So I've been doing real estate 1031s only. Um, the ones that you talked about that were interesting. I think the artwork's interesting. Um, you could exchange like SEC licenses. I know were available for like kind exchange. So things like that, but I don't have any super unique uh, stories to tell here. That'll, that'll make me look cool in the eyes of our, uh, our tax focused world. So unfortunately I have to uh, go ahead and, and punt on this question. Cause there's nothing. Good I'll, I'll bet your clients <laughs> are happy to hear that. They probably want this to be as boring as possible because they just want no excitement. They just want it to work and everything's good to go. That's right. As long as we have our processes down and we file the appropriate forms and do everything right, then uh, they're usually pretty happy with us. One of the spots that we see a little bit of danger with um, and where we've actually seen failures before is when, your 180 day exchange period overlaps with 415, the tax deadline, um, because you need to then have an extension on your tax return to make sure that you're kind of meeting all of the appropriate requirements. So that's a danger and in, in a, you know, kind of a spot that you need to look out for if you identify or if you sell a property in early January or 
let's call it, I guess it would have to be December, right? Because we're talking about the prior tax year. Um, you sell a property in December and you really use those 180 days and you don't identify anything until, uh, or you don't close on anything until May or June, um, you want to make sure you extend your tax return because you can run into some issues there. Okay. I have a, a weird question. I'm not sure why this just popped in my mind. How do, how do you do something to ensure that the taxpayer you're helping is actually buying the piece of property as opposed to just like telling you they're buying a piece of property? Or is there enough documentation that like you're always certain? Do you ever actually like go and look at the piece of land and verify it actually exists? We don't do that. Um, generally, we're working with pretty sophisticated clients that don't, you know, commit fraud on a daily basis, um, or at least we hope they don't. Um, but really, those 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 companies that act as intermediaries, you know, they, they handle a lot of that, especially related to title and closing and things like that. So. That is not, now that you say it, I'm going to be thinking about this every time. I see it. <laughs> is there really like, a building? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to need you to send me a picture of this building. Or, you know, like get on Google Earth and make sure it exists. But um, no, not, not, not a concern. I'm sure someone somewhere has attempted it at some point. Um, but not the clients that we deal with, fortunately, um, has not been a concern. So no worries there. Well, Eric, this has been really, really interesting. And I think a lot of people will find what we're talking about useful because I think, you know, sometimes we talk about things that like giant multinational companies can can do, but like the typical person can't do. But a like kind exchange is something that a giant company can do all the way down to like a little individual investor who buys like a little investment property, a condo or something, and they can like kind exchange that and defer the tax. So a uh, very useful conversation. And thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, of course. I was happy to be here. I appreciate you inviting me on. All right. Well, I'm uh, Scott Dyering, professor of accounting at Duke University, and I'm joined, as always, by Jeff Hoops. My co-host and our guest today has been Eric Telecamp from BDO. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll chat with you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.